Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. Before we get started, I want to say a few words about podcasting during a pandemic. Well, first, like everyone involved in media or communication, we're pivoting to figuring out how to work from home while also providing you the same quality we strive to offer. We've been working really hard on our audio quality, trying to build our home studios, microphones. So we're, we're learning. It's a work in progress. We apologize the sound isn't quite as good as normal, but we're, we're getting there. And second, I just want to say I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and many shows and hosts are grappling with what's the right role for a podcast in such a dire time? Right? What's the right tone to take? Etc. And it's really hard to find the balance between too much depressing doom and gloom, and there's certainly a lot of that these days on the one hand, and then for those who are like more trying to entertain, make sure they, that they're taking the situation seriously enough. So I've thought about this a lot. We've discussed it. And, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to dig in for the long haul. Right? We are in for a protracted fight in this country, first to get control of this deadly virus, and then to take back our country, really from those who want to roll back the progress of the past 50 years. And they're even using this crisis to dismantle as much of the progressive policy gains as they can, already suspending enforcement of environmental, civil rights, immigration laws, et cetera. So it's going to be a long-term struggle, and we need to have a multi-year vision, right? And if you think about it, it was 12 years ago that Obama was elected. And I think to really truly transform this country, we have to be looking out over the next decade. And long-term, I'm very optimistic because the trends are in our favor, and we'll be discussing some of that in the podcast today. So we're digging in for that fight. And we're going to do our best to bring you quality information and analysis to help you understand what's happening and to give what guidance we can as to how to focus your time, energy, and resources. And I'm truly glad that we have the guest that we have today is one of the people who've been most insightful around helping people understand what this period is in history. So with that, let's get started. So I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Charlene Chang, hunkered down in our respective home studios, connected by the miracles of modern technology. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And you want to introduce our special guest. Hey, Steve. I'm doing pretty well overall. Like I've been texting some friends instead of just saying, how was your day? Sometimes I'll say, how was your day? All things considered, mm. just knowing that we're in this new norm. And overall, um, I'm hanging in there and just finding my way into this new reality. I feel like I should have like a, like a superhero cape for each of my no, new roles now. Like a lot of parents, I'm just balancing a lot of multiple roles. So I'm a homeschool teacher now. I'm apparently also a PE coach. I'm also the cafeteria lady, cleaning lady, and still the mom. And it's on top of your day job. Right? And I'm just, that's all on top of my day job. Yeah. And I've been just trying to give a lot of my friends who are parents extra props out there now for hanging in there. Uh, and I only, again, I only have one kid. So I know that I'm uh, not even facing what a lot of people are with multiple kids. And I'm also really super excited for today's episode. And we're really grateful to our special guest for being as flexible as he has been with us. We had first tried to book him to a studio, but then we had to scramble and adjust after our San Francisco studio had to close because San Francisco, the city, had instituted a shelter in place and a lot of businesses had to stop operations as usual. So we weren't able to record this in our regular studio, but we are very happy and honored today to have as our guest, Ron Brownstein. Ron is one of our nation's top journalists. I'm a huge fan of his work. He's a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and senior political analyst for CNN, where he writes a column and appears on TV to offer commentary. And he has written six books. And Steve, I know you and I are super <laughs> impressed by this because of yes. how much we know goes into making even one He's book. One. Uh, one of the books is uh, titled The Second Civil War, How Extreme Partisanship 
has paralyzed Washington and polarized America. He is the recipient of several journalism awards, including the Kerry McWilliams Award for Lifetime Achievement from the American Political Science Association to honor his major journalistic contributions to our understanding of politics. And with that, thank you so much, Ron, for joining us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me. <laughs> uh, the flexibility is something I think everyone in the country is getting used to, uh, balancing yeah. multiple roles and doing them in, uh, in new ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so thanks for, yeah, for, for taking the time. One of the reasons I really wanted to have you on in particular is because of the work you've done around having people understand the dynamics of what's happening in politics in a larger context, right? When I was writing my book, my publisher was urging me to include reference to other writers or authorities who shared the analysis of the significance of the demographic revolution in, in U.S. politics. I remember telling him, so well, really, there's, there's only Ron Brownstein. Right? So. <laughs> All right, there haven't been that many. I, you know, interesting, I guess Tom Edsel is maybe the father of us all in the 80s mm. and, and early 90s writing about, you know, because, I mean, I think for both of us, and first of all, it's really great to be on with, with you, Steve, and, and Charlie. I mean, I, I think I have learned a tremendous amount from your analysis over the years, and you've certainly been thinking about this as insightfully and creatively as, as anyone out there. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the story of demographic change, I think, is really a two-sided story, right? It's, it's both the change itself, the cultural and demographic change, and then the reaction to that change right. among the people who are both uh, uh, who, who support it and those who are frightened or hostile to it. It's, it's really right. both sides have, have right. really been the driving force in our politics, I think, now for many years. Yeah, so can you actually elaborate on that? Because you, you coined this phrase, which I've tried to, I think really captures what's actually happening around this issue, around the, the battle between the coalition of transformation mm -hmm. and the coalition of restoration. So right. can you explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, and the first time I used that phrase was in the 2012 election, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but certainly a concept that I think has been sharpening or coming into focus for, for many years. You know, we've gone from a class-based to a culture-based political mm. alignment in America, uh, really over the last 50 years. And I, I think you can, 55 by now, you can go back, I think, to the Civil Rights Act uh, of right. 1964, maybe as the demarcation point. But certainly in the, in the first decades after World War II, you could draw a line somewhere in the income ladder. And most people above it reliably voted Republican. Most people below it reliably voted Democratic. And in ways that we have both written about, that world broke down in the 60s and 70s and Republicans, you know, through all sorts of racially tinged social issues and some that weren't like uh, guns and uh, uh, national security, basically loosened and then finally broke completely the Democratic hold on white blue collar America that had been the cornerstone of the FDR coalition for 35 years. Uh, we get to 1984 and we have the millions of Reagan Democrats, uh, people who have grown up in a household that have been Democratic, probably had a picture of Walter Ruther and Franklin Roosevelt on the mantle, found themselves voting Republican. And then in the 90s, uh, you know, the reverse starts happening, late 80s, early 90s, and obviously accelerates since, which is the Democrats start doing better in white collar, white communities around the, uh, largely around those same social issues on the flip side of them that were driving the blue collar whites toward the, the Republicans. And meanwhile, while this, what I call the class inversion is going on among whites, we're living through this profound demographic transformation and we're going from non-whites being what, 10% of the electorate, I remember, in 1980, you know, mm -hmm. getting to 20% by the early 90s and, and, and closer to 30% by now. So you, uh, as we've gone from, from class to culture, I think that uh, it has become pretty clear over the last 10 years or so 
the coalitions of the parties, both demographic and geographically, uh, fissure along the same line. And you have a Republican coalition that is dependent on the voters and the areas of the country that are the most unhappy with or threatened by the way America is changing demographic, culturally, uh, and economically. And that includes non-college whites, especially men, uh, older whites, evangelical whites, and then people, whites living outside of urban areas. And then the Democratic coalition are the voters and places that are most comfortable with the way the country is evolving demographically, culturally, and economically. And those tend to be college-educated whites, especially women, the people of color, uh, millennials, and secular voters, all of them concentrated primarily in the, in the largest metro areas. Hillary Clinton won over half her votes in just the 100 largest counties in America. So I believe that is the fault line we are living through. You mm -hmm. see it, I think, on every issue. You see it on the coronavirus responses I've been writing mm -hmm. quite a bit about right. in the last few weeks. And I think that divide will look big, what I call the trench between the Coalition of Restoration and the Coalition of Transformation, the division between them, I think, is going to look bigger than ever in 2020 because it's highly possible that Trump loses the big metros by even more than he did last time and wins the smaller places by even more mm -hmm. than he did last time. Mm -hmm. What's the geographic distribution of the coalitions at this point, would you say? Well, I think, that, to me, the striking thing is that the pattern now, we've reached the point where the pattern now looks the same in almost every state, if not literally every state. And in every state, Democrats are gaining ground in the metro areas and Republicans are consolidating their hold over the non-metro areas. I mean, that is true in the reddest state, Texas. Hmm. You know, Beto O'Rourke won the, the five biggest counties in Texas by 680,000 votes. Uh, he was the first top-of-the-ticket Democrat to win all four of the largest metro areas, metro areas in Texas since LBJ in 1964, you know, mm -hmm. and Democrats won a House seat in Salt Lake City and in Oklahoma mm -hmm. City and in Houston and in Dallas and in Charleston, Richmond. I mean, these are not places where we had previously seen uh, any Democratic strength. And conversely, you know, the Republican strength in rural America is true even in the bluest states. It's true in Minnesota. It's true in California. Uh, and I shouldn't say rural. I mean, it's small town, rural, and exurban. Mm -hmm. It's really non-metro. So to me, the striking thing is that we are seeing the same geographic and demographic alignment basically in every state. And the issue is to what extent it moves and what is the balance of population between those kind of contending forces uh, at this point. I talked to someone yesterday, for example, a political scientist in Texas, who said he did not consider it impossible that Joe Biden will win the four biggest metros, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston, by a million votes wow. in 2020. Wow. But, but Trump might still win the state because right. the rural part, but again, you know, that is the basic division. And I, I think that sets up a real long-term issue for Republicans because you can define Trump's strategy, I think, pretty clearly as trading growing margins among groups that are shrinking in society mm -hmm. for growing opposition among groups that are growing. That's what he's yeah. doing. I mean, that, that, yeah. that is clearly what he's doing. It can work in the short run. It can maybe even work in the medium run because of all the structural advantages that the groups that are shrinking have in our system, like the Senate and so forth. But in the long run, there's no business in the world that would tell you that is a viable business strategy.
Right. Well, he's not, he's not focused on the long run. It's a right. short term. Right. Yeah. Now, that's what you're saying about that divide between the urban and the, and, and the more rural area. But that was my take on what happened in Georgia. I think that people in 2018, right, Stacey Abrams' race, is that people, I mean, it, it's disappointing me. People keep saying like, oh, well, that didn't work, right? Without realizing she got more votes than any Democrat has ever run in the state of Georgia ever in terms of mm-hmm. massive mm-hmm. mobilization. Mm-hmm. But I started, I started to think she was in trouble when the early vote came in from these outlying areas, and I started looking at those margins. And I was like, well, this is going to be a problem, actually. Right. So, right. Well, and, and that's, look, and that's where we are. That's certainly, you know, certainly was the case in Texas where, you know, you had this incredible, what, O'Rourke winning the biggest counties by so much, mm-hmm. but yet still losing because, right. uh, you know, we're, we're over 70% for, for Ted Cruz. Beyond that, I think we're going to see that even intensified or multiplied in this election. I mean, uh, as I said, if you look at the 100 largest counties in America, Clinton won 87 of the 100 largest counties. She won them by over 15 million votes. And they provided over half of her total votes, just those 100 counties. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it's possible that the Democrats will win them by even more. I think it's likely. I mean, look, what was the two largest counties in the country that Trump won in 2016? Maricopa and Phoenix which went Democratic in the 2018 Senate and is almost certainly going to go Democratic again for Mark Kelly. And then Tarrant County, uh, which is you know, right outside of uh, Dallas, which is Fort Worth. Right. Okay, that went for Beto, narrowly, but nonetheless. And I, right. I, just, I don't see any metro area. I mean, is there, maybe there's some in the southern tier where Trump could narrow his deficits from last time, but I think by and large, he is going to lose the metros by even more. And I think, you know, the question is whether... Democrats lose the, the non-metros by as much or even more than they did last time. I'm going to jump in here, Ron. Charlene, yes. Yeah, sound, I really appreciate that insight. I was just thinking about, and I'm sure our listeners do too, I'm just you know, really appreciating that kind of insight and reminding us to think also on the level of counties, metro areas, because it tends to be, I feel like in the media, the conversation tends to be just about states, right, or even regions. But thanks for that. I wanted to turn our attention to um, talking about something you referenced a few minutes earlier, which is about this political divide that is shaping up currently in terms of a response across the country to the coronavirus. On March 20th, you wrote a great column for the Atlantic titled Red and Blue, America Isn't Experiencing a Pandemic. Fascinating title. And everybody, again, should check it out. It's a really good article. In that column, you wrote, Quote, if the disease was now ravaging small town America, it's unlikely that Trump and so many other conservatives would be as enthusiastic about easing social distancing. So talk about that and what you meant by that. Well, I think, in, look, in the polling from the beginning, it's been very clear that not only did partisan Republicans perceive less of a threat and were less likely to change their personal behavior than partisan Democrats, but that people who lived in rural areas were less likely to do so than those in suburban areas who were less likely to do so than those uh, in urban areas. And the reality is, is that, you know, our economy increasingly is driven by a relatively small number of big metros that are connected to the world. That is their competitive advantage in the 21st century and why, you know, I grew up in New York in the era of Ford to New York dropped dead. And there was the, you know, the mm. bumper, there was the billboard in Seattle, the last person leaving Seattle, turn off the lights and right. San Francisco was on its back. And, you know, that is why all of these places that were left for dead in 1975 are now in, you know, in the strongest economy they've ever had, the big metros around the country. Many of them are literally, I had the mayor of Seattle tell me not long ago, this is our strongest economy since the Klondike gold rush. Um, wow. 
with lots of problems of inequality and so forth, but the same factors, the same forces, the dynamics that have enabled them to kind of resurge and, and become the center of our economy also make them vulnerable mm-hmm. to this kind of global pandemic because they are the parts of the country that are most open to the world. Not only international travelers, most likely to have their own people who are going abroad. I mean, they right. are the very connection to the world that has revived these places also left them vulnerable. So at this point, you know, this is still primarily a threat or an, it, is, it is unfolding primarily in the largest metros, New York, Seattle, LA, San Francisco, Miami rising quickly, Detroit. And in much of rural America, it's still something happening somewhere else. And, I, and, and believe me, I think Trump is heading in that direction and how he characterizes what happened here and ultimately blaming governors and mayors and maybe even blaming cities themselves, right. you know, which he's already calling chaotic and dangerous, uh, as basically saying this is what you get when you live the way they do in New York and Chicago and L.A. I don't think he's there yet, but I, mm-hmm. there have been hints in that direction, like talking about quarantine, for example. So uh, I think that there is a significant geographic disparity in how people are experiencing this. And I think it has been easier for so many conservatives and Republicans to talk about reopening the economy because the voters they care about most, their heartland, their core at this point, are not yet feeling it as directly as some of our biggest areas. So how do you think that's going to play itself out, right? Because it is starting to expand, right? I think they're, they're starting to do more, you know, take more steps in places, even like Georgia as it gets more. So how do you, and yet the economy is in this near freefall, you know, trying to paralyze. So how do you see that playing itself out? Well, first, as someone said to me, uh, Larry Levitt of Kaiser uh, Family Foundation, which is kind of a neighbor of yours, uh, said to me, you know, look, in blue America, this is perceived primarily as a health crisis. In red America, it may be the economic pain that is more visible at this point. I think that's right mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. of today. Look, I think, I, look, I think it is a big question, a, a big uh, fulcrum in how this plays out politically will be how extensively it reaches ultimately through the country. In many ways, small town and rural red America is more exposed to this. It's older fewer health resources, fewer people with uh, health insurance, more dependent on Medicaid. But if we live through this horrible episode and whenever we start feeling like we're coming out of the other side, whenever that is, if we feel like this was primarily a problem of cities, not solely, but primarily a problem of big cities and inner suburbs, I think the political impact will be very different than if it is seen as something that reached throughout the country. Because I think if it stays located in the biggest places, Trump's base will be more likely to, to believe that he handled it okay. And I think, as I say, we're going to get to the point where a lot of conservative voices are going to blame the cities if that remains a viable strategy, if it is not, in fact, burning through uh, all parts of America. Right. Some people have raised, like, this may fundamentally change different public attitudes about different public policies, et cetera. So I'm wondering about your thoughts around healthcare. I've been reflecting on it. I think actually Axelrod wrote about this in his book, but that perception was that people were against healthcare because they thought that was something for poor people and for black yep. people. Right. And I, then the, I wrote about that too. There was very clear polling, Steve, on that from Gallup, that most right. non-college whites saw it as a welfare program initially. Yeah. Yeah. And so that I'm wondering about that because I'm looking at, I was reading also that book, um, this recent book, right? Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzl. Uh-huh. Where he, he talks about this 41-year-old guy who was dying of liver disease. And he says- yes. Yeah. No way I want my tax dollars paying for Mexicans or welfare queens. 
I would rather die. And he did. And so that attitude seems to me to underpin the lack of commitment to investing in the healthcare system, which now we're paying this price for. But I'm wondering if you think that's going to change at, because of this or, or, or not. Well, first, I think it's already changed to an extent in that in the effort to repeal the ACA, what the, the meaning of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, I think got redefined for most Americans in 2017. When it was passed under Obama, it was most people saw it as an attempt to expand coverage to people who didn't have it. And that's what created the sense, particularly among big parts of the white working class, but also among college white men, that it was for somebody else, not for me. Right. In the fight over repeal, the central component of the what was the central component of the ACA that was the biggest shield against repeal? It was the it was its provisions on pre-existing conditions, right. barring insurers from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. And all of a sudden, the law I think became not something for somebody else, but something for me or somebody I know, my mother, my uncle, who has you know a liver problem or diabetes or whatever. And so I think that's why the law is now over 50% in public opinion, because it was seen as something that benefits me mm -hmm. or people around me more than it was originally when the principal association that people applied to it was not expanding coverage, it was pre protecting pre-existing conditions. Now, does this take you the next step where millions of people will now lose private health insurance in the months ahead, and, and probably millions have already as we are talking, and will they say, okay, I am more willing than I have been in polling so far to say, let's just put all this in the government so it's always there. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm skeptical because I think there are a lot of reasons why people are skeptical about single payer, including the cost and including that it kind of takes you back closer to that idea of my tax dollars are going to benefit somebody else. But it's not inconceivable to me. I mean, this is when has the country experienced a shock to its daily life of this magnitude? We weren't alive for Pearl Harbor. And maybe that was because ultimately one third of working age men disappeared from the streets and went into the army or Navy. They went into, into the military. But day-to-day -day life, other than the fact that all the fathers were gone, and that's a big except, kind of went on. I don't know if there has been a disruption of daily life like this since Pearl Harbor or the Civil War. Maybe there's another example you can think of. And given something of that magnitude, it is possible that things change at the other end of it that I can't you know, forecast today. Yeah, no, that's what's so fascinating, the chronological alignment of this, right? So right at the time that the Democratic Socialist is losing in the presidential primary, all the Republicans say, here's a trillion dollars we're just going to hand out to people, right? <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of the whole mm -hmm. socialism mm -hmm. mindset. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, look, I mean, I was among others who calculated that the annual cost of the total agenda that Sanders put up on his website was somewhere between 5.5 and 6 trillion a year, mm -hmm. doubling the size of the federal government. It was very hard for me to imagine that would ever really happen. And so I felt he was kind of misleading voters by, you know, implying he would not actually have to make choices between all of the things he wanted to do. In fact, I, I, I really believe there's no chance under any circumstance you could do all of those things. You would double the federal government in one, in one fell swoop. But having said that, you know, we are talking about an emergency, as I said, that we had not seen and, and we are probably, and who knows how many trillion we are going to spend before people feel safe going back to work in large right. numbers or mayors and governors feel safe right. allowing them to go right. back to work in large numbers. Yeah, right. So it's all the, the, the presidential races, how can people, where would you find this money? 
and then in 10 days we come up with two trillion dollars right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so you touched on this earlier but let's talk about in terms of the general election in terms of how this plays itself yeah. out what's your take around how trump and you've been tweeting about this as well around how people are seeing his response he's now discovered he gets, he gets a national daily platform What's your sense of the politics of this, how it plays itself out in terms of him building support or people going to blame him for not being foresighted enough or how do you, how do you assess that? Well, first of all, it's, it's hard to know how to react. You know, I've been writing about polls for over 30 years mm-hmm. and it is hard to know how to react to the, basically the, the, the bump he's received in overall job approval and essentially the 50-50 verdict on how he's handling this in the public. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, Every public health official and every frontline medical professional is out there saying, and the evidence is showing, that this has been catastrophically mishandled by the Trump administration. I've had experts in federal administration, political scientists say this, this could go down as the greatest single federal failure of all time, even more than intelligence before 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. You know, you're talking about the, sh- the shortage of testing, the shortage of PPE, the, all of these obvious unequivocal failures and yet in polling consistently we've settled into essentially half the country saying he's done a good job and half the country saying he hasn't on this and his overall job approval has ticked up a few points now having said that kind of being genuinely astonished that the uniform verdict of the people on the front lines isn't more reflected in public opinion i would point out you can point out the other side of the ledger which is that every leader in the world in, there's two different polls on this. Every you know, leader in the Western world has gotten a bump in public opinion, in public approval, mm. it, while they, including in Italy, where the conditions are significantly per capita, I'm sure, worse than yeah. they are here in the U.S. And that reflects kind of the rally around the flag, but also, you know, as uh, Bruce Springsteen would say, everybody finds a reason to believe. I mean, you, you mm. know, to say that you don't trust the elected leader of the country at a moment like this is to surrender to a certain level of despair. So I would, I would say that it is just a reminder, first of all, how stable his support is, how hard it is to really take the bottom out from under him. Um, uh, You know, we saw it in impeachment when, you know, even after 60% of the country basically said he acted improperly, his approval rating stayed the same. I mean, supporting Trump is a cultural statement in many ways, and it's it's hard to dislodge people with that. And, you know, so this, this may not take the floor out from under him for the general election, but I would say that I think most political scientists believe that the bump you get in a rally around the flag moment, a moment of national crisis, is your high point. And then you are subject to events. And right now, events are not going very well in terms of either the economy and certainly the public health threat. So most people I talk to expect that Trump will kind of be ground down little by little back to kind of where his floor is, which is, you know, which is somewhere around... 45, 44% of the electorate. I mean, I, look, I, look, I think a big lesson of this is that if you say, if you get up and you say, I will stand against all of the changes in American life that you don't like, there's somewhere around 40, 41% of the, maybe 42% of the electorate that is always going to be with you. And then he gets a few more last points from people who are kind of satisfied with the outcomes, primarily right. the economy so far. But so I, I, it's a long way of saying that he has gotten less of a bump than most leaders. The fact that he's gotten any bump 
given the performance is pretty astonishing. Uh, but it is entirely possible that we'll end up pretty much in the same place we have always been, where Trump has 45% of the voters. And the question is whether that's enough to win, especially in the Electoral College. Yeah. And as you were, as you were talking, I was just remembering that Bush Sr., right, he had like 90% approval ratings after uh, yeah. the Gulf War, right? Yeah. And then he, then right. he lost the election. Right. right. And, and, yeah. and Bush had, you know, 90% or I don't know, it was 90, it was the 80s, W. Bush after the Iraq, after 9-11. Mm -hmm. uh, and then eventually that, you know, ground down into the 30s. Uh, obviously, there's a shorter time frame here, but there's a second set of pressures. It's not only the public health pressures, it's the economic pressures. Look, right. I mean, it may be that many Americans may ultimately decide that no one could have responded you know, this was so big that no one could have handled it. And I, I think that could happen for a certain segment of voters. But I am struck that even when he has been at his 50-50 on overall handling, which is where all the polls are pretty much settled in after the first few days, with the exception of that one anomalous Gallup poll, even though he's 50-50, close to 60% say he mishandled the beginning. He acted too right. slowly. He, right. he, didn't, he didn't take it seriously fast enough. And I do think that's a time bomb and these ads that Democrats are putting up basically showing him saying it's going to go away as the caseload grew mm -hmm. is an issue that he is going to have to face if and when we actually have a, you know, a campaign in this fall, right. which is not right. guaranteed. Yeah. So looking, so in terms of the fall, one of the things I really wanted to discuss you know, with you in particular that, you know, I, I kind of get into it with a lot of these operatives. You're framing, which I you know, think is 100% correct, coalition of transformation versus coalition of restoration. But what, what's your analysis of the size of each of those coalitions? And then linked to that is what's mm. your assessment of the how many or how few actual swing voters are there? Really good question. Okay, so the coalition of restoration is probably something around 40% of the electorate, mm -hmm. Trump's hardcore base, and it's pretty easy to identify that. And as I say, in addition to that 40%, you know, there's somewhere like Five, roughly four percent. There's probably five, six, seven, eight percent of the electorate that isn't really fully on board with his racial nationalism, but they mm -hmm. like tax cuts or they like less government or they like the way their 401k looked until a month ago. So I think that those are the two pieces of, of his, his electorate. I would say the coalition of transformation is bigger on a, mm -hmm. on a national basis. If we're looking at kind of college white women, secular whites, people of color, certain millennial women, I think that's a little bigger. I think it, it's clearly a little bigger. I think it's probably closer mm -hmm. to 45% of the electorate. Uh, maybe rough, I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, and there, it's hard. And obviously, these are all hard to quantify. Right. But, you know, if you look at, if you look, I mean, one thing, I, you know, there, there are a, a lot of questions that I'm sure you have written about that kind of go to levels of white racial anxiety. You know, do you think whites face as much discrimination as minorities, for example? And I think those give you a pretty good cutaway on how people split on this. Now, it is also true that people of color are not a monolith. And Trump may have an audience among black and especially Hispanic men. Uh, there's mm -hmm. no question about that in 2020. Right. I, think, I think older Hispanic men are not at all locked down for Democrats. But I do think the coalition of transformation is larger. The problem is it's not evenly distributed. 
And it is not nearly as powerful in these blue collar states that Democrats have been depending on in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s and 2000s, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and I'm much less Ohio and Iowa. You know, in all of those states, as I wrote in 2016 early, Democrats depend on an act of political levitation. They run better among non college whites there than they do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I do think in the long run that uh, the coalition of transformation will not be the ruling coalition in America until it gets to the point where it can reliably flip the Sunbelt states where it is a bigger part of the population, some combination of North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, and then eventually Texas. Well, Texas might actually come sooner than some of the others, the way things are going, given that Beto ran, what, 17, 18 points better among college whites than Stacey Abrams did. More of a problem in Georgia where so many of them are evangelicals. But as I said, coalition of transformation is bigger than the coalition of restoration. Doesn't mean it's going to run the country given the distribution issues until it shows it can flip some of these Sunbelt states. Right. And just on that, I think you've tweeted about, written about this year around Wisconsin. Everyone seems to be focusing on Wisconsin in particular. And there seems to be a lot of, in terms of 2020, there's a lot of pessimism among Democrats around the prospects. There are a lot of you know, highly anxiety. And it does seem like it's historically always been close, but the Democrats have always won it up until 2016. But I haven't seen people talk about much is that Trump got fewer voters than Romney did. Romney did, yeah, yeah. And there was and a Hillary. big third-party uh, increase right. that Democrats won in 2018. So what's your sense of what happened 12, 16, and 18 in, in Wisconsin? I think, I think Wisconsin is hard for Democrats, and it's hard for them to rely on. I don't think they're going to win it six straight again at the presidential level in my lifetime. I don't think that's going to happen. Not to say they can't win it this time, but mm-hmm. I kind of think like what's been happening is – Trump obviously is an accelerant to all of these trends that we're talking about, the coalition transformation, coalition restoration, the demographic and geographic separation and realignment that we're living through. And I kind of feel like we had maybe a vertical line between states and you were either, you know, Wisconsin in that line was slightly on the blue side of the divide. Arizona was slightly on the red side of the divide, Florida, Ohio, North Carolina were exactly on the divide. And then Trump kind of tilts it, not quite to a 45-degree angle, but he tilts it. I'm not, enough of a, I'm not enough of a geometry student to give you the right analogy. But he tilts it a little, and, and suddenly the line is cutting through the states at a different angle. And now in this new angle, Wisconsin, I think, leans slightly red, and Arizona is suddenly right on the line. Hmm. Um, I, I think that Democrats can totally win Wisconsin this time. Uh, Biden uh, is capable of winning back enough blue collar white women. And if he picks the right nominee uh, and there's the right investment, the African-American turnout in Milwaukee will be better than it was last time. I think they can win it. I don't think they can depend on it. I mean, I think after the last couple of weeks of Trump attacks on Gretchen Whitmer, I think the Democrats have really good odds of winning Michigan. But again, I don't think, you know, Michigan is, is easier for them than Wisconsin, but mm-hmm. I don't think they are in a position where they want to be relying on these states to the same extent right. over the next decade. I mean, the, the story of the 2020s has to be whether Democrats can break through in the Sun Belt where the coalition of transformation is growing. And right. it'll probably be Arizona in 2020, but certainly Texas is going to be close. Georgia will probably be close. And at some point, Democrats have to start winning Senate seats from those states. They have to start yeah. winning them at the presidential level. And that's going to put a big hurt. I mean, I I have said that Trumpism 
as a governing philosophy for the Republican Party, essentially this idea of trading bigger margins among shrinking groups for shrinking margins among growing groups, I think Trumpism is viable only so long as that approach can still hold Texas. Mm-hmm. On the day when that approach can no longer hold Texas, you cannot, it, it's, it's kind of ritual suicide to right. continue down that road uh, once you lose Texas. I'm holding out for that day. I'm, 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 looking, I'm looking forward to that day. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to jump in here, Ron. So one of the things that Democracy in Color, our organization, is focusing on uh, and I don't know if you caught this, if it crossed your radar, but it is, we, we're really like pushing on the vice presidential selection for the Democratic candidates. And Biden has said that he'll choose a woman. And I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of what kind of person you feel like he needs as a VP to help him win and the party win in November. Well, it's a perfect crystallization. And, and Steve and I have done interviews about this from the other end with me doing the interviewing. I mean, it's, it's the perfect crystallization of the core choice that the party has faced. Now, understanding whenever you say a party is at a crossroads, it's never all or nothing. They always do some of both. But if the core choice is reassure blue collar and soft Republican white collar voters in the Midwest, or mobilize more young voters, especially young voters of color, if that is the basic choice the party has faced in its nominating process, we know how that ended up at the presidential level. You know, they nominated the guy who, you know, whose claim, whose, whose argument is that I can win back more white people in the Midwest. Uh, right. And, and, and then black people put him into the nomination. But go right. ahead. Absolutely. Yes, right. right. Absolutely. And uh, absolutely. Uh, that, that's who they pick. That's the choice on vice president. Do you pick Amy Klobuchar or Gretchen Whitmer from column A, double mm-hmm. down on winning the upper Midwest with, you know, an all reassurance ticket? Or I would personally think that the the political argument goes for the other direction of uh, picking someone who at least gives you the possibility of exciting more turnout among younger people, especially younger people of color. And that's Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams or some of the others that have been, that have been named a woman of color. I think he has to pick a woman of color uh, Mm -hmm. under any normal circumstance. I think that's what he would have done. I suppose depending on how coronavirus epidemic plays out there could be a late case developing for Whitmer as the as kind of the embodiment of democratic can do in the states as opposed to Trump's failures at the federal level i mean you could uh-huh. you know you could see how that argument could emerge but that's the basic choice what's your um don't you mess the thing about young people i'm actually working on a piece looking at and i've been you know not not shy about saying i think Abrams would be the strongest person um, but it's just amazing to me, actually. I don't think it's gotten very much coverage how poorly that Biden has done with young people. I mean, he got like, yeah. what, 19% in Michigan, the state that he actually won? Yeah, the, so numbers, the numbers are at least as bad and in some cases worse than, than Hillary. I mean, they're, they're yeah. really, really bad. And, um, okay, I'm looking here at a little spreadsheet I have. Iowa, 3%. New Hampshire, 4%. These are people under 29. Nevada, wow. 10 gets a little better. South Carolina, 26, Alabama, 30, California, five, Maine, nine, Minnesota, 17, North Carolina, 19, Texas, kind of a big state, 13. Uh, Mississippi is the only state. I think Mississippi is the only state where he has won people under 30. Wow. So yeah, I mean, that is, that is an issue. I mean, not, and look, the general election polling is not that they're going to vote for Trump. It's whether they're going to vote 
And, right, exactly. You know, and, and that is an issue. And I will say with, I think any, any campaign has to approach with humility their ability to really change turnout patterns among age groups. Because as you know, each age group pretty much has followed the same trajectory and how much more mm-hmm. they vote every four years. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's just that millennials started, maybe baby boomers and Gen X and millennials, I believe this is right, have all been increasing their turnout rates at comparable growth rates over every four-year cycle. The difference is millennials started at a lower rate of participation. So at the same age, they're lower than Gen X and baby boom at each point. So I would think that is the most conspicuous weakness Biden has without question. And, you know, it was true across the board. I mean, even among non-college whites, I believe I, I, I ran this. I think in Iowa, he had he was at 1% among non-college whites under 45. Wow. Uh, so you're, you're just talking about terrible, terrible numbers. And you look at him and the way he campaigns and the way he talks and there's no reason for him to connect with young people. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. that's not his, that is not his unique selling proposition. I mean, right. it's, it's that he can reassure. Yeah. I mean, if, if, there, if what's the, is there any other circumstance other than running against Donald Trump and believing that you needed to reassure a certain number of white voters, especially blue collar white voters in the Midwest in which the party would have turned to Joe Biden in 2020? No, right. no right. circumstance, just none. It was this specific backdrop, this specific challenge, that made many voters, as you noted, including African-American voters say, this is what we need, a reassuring older white guy. Um, So it's a big problem. And, you know, again, under any circumstance with the coronavirus, you would say he will have to pick someone to address that. And I still think in the end, he will pick someone to address that. Uh But it is at least possible that he will try to double down on one of the Midwestern reassuring white women. And I, I, look, Klobuchar, you know, did him a big solid. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, those, those endorsements really were as dramatic a 48 hours as I've ever covered in politics. This is my 10th primary that I've covered, but Whitmer as the face of the can do state Democrats could also prove attractive though. In the end, as I said, I think a Harris Abrams governor of New Mexico kind of thing might be, mm-hmm. might be, might be more attractive. Right. So, Ron, we usually like to end with a wrap-up question, a little bit of a personal or lighter question. And we did see that you had majored in English literature in college. <laughs> and Steve, as it turns out, was also an English major. Mm. I, by the way, very much wanted to be an English major, but had some pretty conservative uh, Chinese immigrant parents who were uh. what? Who were like, what are you going to do with that? My mom said that too. <laughs> I, was an, I was an accounting major. But the question is, what was one of the most memorable books or essays you read in college and why? Oh, easily. Uh, the Robert Fitzgerald translation of The Odyssey. Uh, mm. I took a course called Pathways Home, which you read mm. The Odyssey, Ulysses, Paradise Lost, and one other thing that I can't remember all these years later. But, I mean, The Odyssey was the basic framework for, you know, all of Western literature and kind of the hero's journey and, you know, finding home and the journey from innocence to experience and all of that. And the Robert Fitzgerald version of it is so beautifully translated. And to this day, I look out and can't, every time, every time I pour a glass of something, I look out and think of the wine dark sea. Wow. Nice. Wow. I think for me, Charlene, it's actually, I thought about it, it's actually not college, high school, but it was Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. And that was really, like, really resonated with me. He has these, uh, what is it? Whoso will be a man must be a nonconformist. Uh, imitation is suicide. 
And so those things really stuck with me. I remember highlighting like almost the whole chapter. Radical, radical stuff. Radical yeah. stuff. For me, it was, uh, again, I was not an English major, but I did, oh, I've always loved reading books. And I remember coming across this book called Ayi, an anthology of Asian American writers. And, the, the, and it was, a, you know, I highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out. It is a kind of pillar, foundational, really amazing book of Asian American writing from across centuries, actually. It's a fantastic anthology. Oh, great. 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 Yeah, no, it, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. You know, we, we've been talking only about politics, right? But I mean, just think about every other aspect of our lives in which the demographic and cultural transformation of America yep. is unfolding, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and, and in many ways, politics is last. I was watching the Grammys, I think last year and thinking, okay, I'm looking at the politics of 2030. You know, mm. just looking at that stage. And mm-hmm. I mean, because, because one thing we didn't talk about so much in our, in our conversation is, as I said, our politics is being defined not only by the change, but the backlash against the change. I mean, it is, it is the right. contending exactly. of these two forces, which Trump has sharpened into an absolute spear. I mean, you know, yeah. other Republicans kind of dabbled in this, but he has taken this to its logical extreme of casting mm-hmm. the party, in essence, as a, as a party of white racial identity and defending... Yeah. You know, traditional, I mean, traditional arrangement in lots of different ways. I mean, you know, r- women who voted for Trump, white women who voted for Trump are much more hostile to women working outside of the home, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which he is a message of restoration. And we are engaged in this giant struggle now for control of direction of the country. As I said, I think the coalition of transformation is larger. That doesn't mean it can govern because of the, the structure. But I, can I leave on a slightly hopeful note? Our, our, our mutual friend, Manuel Pastor at USC, mm-hmm. uh, who runs a, a center there that studies demographic change and its, and its impact on communities. I mean, he makes the analogy, and I've heard it from others, that America today is like California in the 90s, right? California in the 90s at a time when we were hitting our demographic kind of tipping points in a matter of three or four years on the ballot past Prop 187, cutting off benefits for uh, undocumented immigrants, it banned affirmative action, it passed right. strikes, it banned bilingual education. I mean, yeah. all of those passed from 94 to 98. And it was at the moment of maximum kind of racial tension. And by the way, large numbers of African-Americans voted for several of those, including the majority mm-hmm. of the black voters voted for Prop 187 in 94. And it just felt like the state was at each, and there was a lot of, you know, I, I lived in L.A., a lot of African-American, Mexican-American tension, Latino tension in South Central. I mean, it's just yeah. like every, everywhere you look, every different group was kind of in tension with the others. Obviously, the Rodney King riots. You know, fast forward 25 years later, we are well past that tipping point. It is a majority minority state. And the sky didn't fall. You know, people are pretty chill about it. You know, it really isn't it really isn't the essence of our politics in any plausible explanation. And so the hopeful explanation is that America in the 20 teens and maybe through the mid 2020s is California in the 90s. And we come out on the other side and we're arguing again about how big we think government should be, you know, what, what our foreign policy should be. And it is not essentially a politics of one party saying we will defend kind of white hegemony. Uh, in every aspect of American life and another saying you have to open the doors to everybody else, which obviously Democrats do imperfectly. But maybe this is just a temporary moment and we'll all calm down. I am not quite as convinced. I mean, I think if, you know, we are at a point where white Christians are 42% of the country and they are this open to a Trumpian message, 
what's going to make them less open when they're 38% of the country. But there is at least the possibility from the California precedent that we kind of come out of the other side of this uh, before we fully tear each other apart. Yeah. All right. Well, that is, that is a right. good note to wrap on. <laughs> thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. I'd like to thank our special guest, Ron Brownstein. You can follow Ron on Twitter, where his handle is at Ron Brownstein, and he's a great follow and a prolific tweeter. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.